So why Lent? Why Lent? Especially now. Especially coming to the end of a term during an otherwise sad month uh, with little daylight and very little in the way of anything to look forward to. Why would the church pile on? Why would the church focus its attention on a penitential season? One that is peculiarly intense, um, which sometimes seems impossibly difficult, especially when we're overeager at the outset. So Lent, with its insistence on prayer and fasting and almsgiving, puts before our eyes, uh, it kind of places before us in a way that we cannot dismiss, our own limitedness, our own weakness, our own inability, which can oftentimes be a very terrible realization. So how could this be good? How could this possibly be something desirable? How could it possibly be something saving? Now, there's a notion abroad that progress is inevitable. That due to advances in technology or to increased learning in you know, whatever particular subject matter or whatever particular discipline, that the state of humanity will just, as if by a law, ineluctably get more and more perfect that man will inevitably progress into a place of greater and greater happiness and abundance. But this notion has been abroad for some time now, and it has pretty significant critics. I was just talking about J.R.R. Tolkien in a conversation last night, and Tolkien is quoted as having said, progress, I do not believe in progress. He said, I'm a Christian, and in fact a Catholic, and so I believe that we are destined to suffer a long defeat, with momentary snatches of redemption, but nevertheless a long defeat. Now, I don't mean that to be kind of like dispiriting and depressing. It's to be understood in a certain way. But G.K. Chesterton was another one who actually uh, engaged with this idea and inveighed against it. At the time during which he lived, uh, one particular author, uh, Wells, uh, who was famous for his um, fiction, wrote a book called The Outline of History. This is H.G. Wells. He wrote The Outline of History. And the basic tenet was that things just get better because of technology, because of wider and more profound learning. Things just get better. And Chesterton looked around and said, that is decidedly not the case. Because he says, there's no principle that we can depend on to work itself out inevitably. There's no intrinsic principle of evolution. Rather, he said, what I observe is a principle of devolution. He says, the only thing that we can rely upon to play itself out inevitably is original sin. At every turn, we witness it undermining the efforts of human beings, tinging the human spirit with selfishness and with weakness and ugliness and moral turpitude. G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote this. He says, Modern masters of science are much impressed with the need of beginning all inquiry with a fact. The ancient masters of religion were quite equally impressed with that necessity. They began with the fact of sin, a fact as practical as potatoes. Whether or no man could be washed in miraculous waters, there was no doubt at any rate that he wanted washing. But certain religious leaders in London not mere materialists, have begun in our day not to deny the highly disputable water, but to deny the indisputable dirt. The idea being there that we have to come to grips with the fact that we are unable, on our own steam, to achieve our goals. And you have two options set before you. Either you admit the fact that you're broken, wounded, and limited, or you deny it outright altogether and redefine what progress and what perfection looks like. So. Chesterton encouraged, in every age, he says, we have to subject this notion to critique and that the human spirit can only be vindicated by vigilance, 
We need to keep watch. We need to wait for the Lord. So I would put it to you, and this is the point of the talk, I would put it to you that true spiritual progress entails a rehearsal of redemption. True spiritual progress entails a rehearsal of redemption. And here I'm going to take another image from G.K. Chesterton. He writes this. This is the beginning of his book, Orthodoxy, which he wrote in 1908, just after having converted to Christianity, but some years before he converted to Catholicism. He says, I have often had a fancy for writing a romance about an English yachtsman who slightly miscalculated his course and discovered England under the impression that it was a new island in the South Sea. His mistake was really a most enviable mistake, and he knew it, if he was the man I take him for. What could be more delightful than to have in the same few minutes all the fascinating terrors of going abroad combined with all the humane security of coming home again? What could be better than to have all the fun of discovering South Africa without the disgusting necessity of landing there? What could be more glorious than to brace oneself up to discover New South Wales and then realize with a gush of happy tears that it was really old South Wales? So I would put it to you that Lent is a story of loss and of recovery, but one that brings about a true progress, the kind of progress that Chesterton describes in rediscovering something from which we have departed. So we're going to walk it, we're going to kind of pursue it from the vantage of salvation history with the notion that Jesus Christ, as the letter to the Hebrews says, is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for love of us despises the shame of the cross, but endures it. So what remains is for us to walk the same path, and that Lent is an especially focused way to do that. So we'll take three steps. First, innocence. Second, sin. And third, redemption. So first, innocence. We believe that we were created well. We were created good. Just take one second with that. We were created good. At each stage in the first creation story recounted in Genesis 1, we are told that it was good. At every day, there's a kind of created pause as God contemplates what he has wrought. And at the end of the sixth day, the day on which he creates the animals and man and woman, God pauses to say that it is very good, that we issue from the hand of God according to his intent, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, which is an awesome fact, one with which we need contend. So we believe, or it's often professed in the Christian tradition, that we were created in grace. And sometimes it's referred to as a state of original justice or original innocence. And sometimes you hear it referred to by the name of rectitude. So just different variations on the same theme. Now, in that state, we can identify three distinct things, and we want to distinguish them so as to have a better appreciation of what's going on. So first, there is grace. Grace is simply a created share in God's divine life. Okay, A created share in God's divine life. Second, we have what St. Thomas calls integral nature, which is to say that our loves, our desires, fired on all cylinders, and that we loved aright according to right knowledge. And then third and finally, um, there are these privileges associated with the original state. You sometimes hear them referred to as preternatural gifts, which means like beyond nature. Um, and these are the ones that kind of start sounding a little bit science fiction-y. Um, but cool. So we would have been immortal, so we wouldn't have died. Also, we would have been impassable, so we would not have suffered decay or corruption or pain or sorrow or fear. 
there would have been no tears to wipe away. So let's kind of break out a small description of each of these three things. So we say that we are created in grace with a harmony obtaining. So grace is the most important thing here. The most distinctive thing about us as created individuals is that from our inception, we are oriented to supernatural life with God, right? So we don't issue from God's hand as something neutral. We don't issue from God's hand as something kind of ambivalent or lacking a trajectory. We are always and everywhere intended for communion, for supernatural life. I have one brother who says uh, that we are accustomed to have a conversation with ourselves about ourselves, right? Like when you wake up early in the morning and you turn off your alarm on your phone and you begin almost instantaneously mulling over the many things that you have to do for the rest of the day, right? And it becomes for you a source of anxiety and like crippling fear and like budding depression, right? He says like we were never intended for that. We were always intended to be kind of broken up, out, and open into conversation and communion with God. So grace ensures that. It makes it such that we are friends of the Most High God and adopted sons and daughters. So grace is what's most important. It's the formal element. And what it does is that it makes divine life almost natural to us. Now that's to speak improperly, but it's like we have a second nature, one that accords with our nature, one that brings it to perfection. It doesn't repress it, right? It doesn't rough, run roughshod over it, but rather it brings what is best out. So like for instance, like if you're thinking about what would I do with my life, what is my vocation? Well, it's a valid thing to consult your desire. It's a valid way to proceed to consult what it is that you love. Because grace does not scrap nature. Rather, it heals it, it purifies it, it emboldens it, it brings it to perfection. So the first question is not like, what should I do? Ah, crippling anxiety, right? The first question is, am I receiving the sacraments in a worthy state? Do I have a life of prayer? Do I have like a bit of discipline, a bit of penance in my life? Do I have good friendships? And if the answer to those questions is yes, then the next question you can ask is, what do I want? Just what do I want? Because the Lord is moving and healing and leading, and that's awesome, and you can trust that. So it makes divine life almost connatural to us, in a sense. It orients us to our supernatural end. But we can also say that it ruins us for life. Because we will always have been created in grace. We will have always been destined for life eternal. And you can't turn back the clock on that. So to step outside of the bounds of grace is not, again, it's not something you, can't, you can do without offending God. And that's not to like assign blame or that's not to kind of heap coals on an otherwise bad situation. But that is to say that we're made in relation and that friendship marks us. And as a result of which it changes everything. So that's the first, grace. The second is what we call integral nature. So I said it's like we're firing on all cylinders. We're loving as we ought to. Okay, So nature received a perfection and a vigor that it would not have had if left to itself. So you can think about it. We as human beings are like one big open wound of desire. We want all kinds of things. In the most basic sense, we want preservation of existence. We want integrity of bodily life. So we want to eat. We want to drink, especially at the end of a long Ash Wednesday. Right? We want to you know, procreate, you know, have sexual intercourse for the procreation and education of children to build up our family life. It's like, not only do I want to pre preserve my own bodily integrity, but I want to ensure that this whole human experiment thing keeps going. Right? So that's most basic. But also we have these desires, these loves, these aspirations that are common to all animals. Right? So I want to move. I want to experience. I want to be kind of bound up in all of the loveliness of this world. I want to gaze on things beautiful. 
I want to almost ingest them, right? So we can't stay neutral to beautiful things because they allure us. They call out from us something that we didn't even know present before the vision, right? We want, yeah, we want all that. But even more yet, we want to know and we want to love. Not just one thing or two things, but we want to know to an infinite extent because our minds are made for, for what is universally true. Or you could just say what is true with a capital T. And our hearts are made for what is universally good. Again, you could just say good with a capital G. As a result of which, we find that in trying to find our happiness in limited things, be it wealth or honor or fame or power or pleasure or whatever, that it never satisfies because they simply cannot bear the weight of our whole heart's love. Right? So we have all of these desires. And as we have come to experience in our own lives, they are not necessarily coordinated. Right? So I can want to pray a holy hour because I love the Lord and he's worth everything, but I can also want to eat many chocolate chip cookies, right? I look at a plate of chocolate chip cookies, and I don't want to eat one and a half, which would probably be like an ordinate caloric intake for that time of day. You know, it's like, I'm feeling about 285 calories worth of desire right now. No, I want to eat that whole plate of chocolate chip cookies twice, right? Once is not even enough, right? So, and all of a sudden, I eat six, seven, eight, and then whatever happens in your body with respect to glucose and insulin, I don't know. I'm insensitive to the inner workings of my, you know, whatever life. But then I'm in front of the Blessed Sacrament and I'm like, I love you, Jesus. And I also love napping. <laughs> and that's the end of it. It was a good three minutes, but the next 57 are spent with my, you know, my chin on my chest. So all of these desires, this big open wound of desire with all of its complex and multifarious dimensions is not necessarily coordinated. But... In a state of integral nature, it would have been. It would have been. So the lower powers would have been subject to the higher powers. Our body would have been subject to our soul. And St. Thomas adds that all of material creation would have been subject to man. So carnivores would have still eaten their prey, but they would have posed no threat to us. Because from us would have radiated a kind of peace and order and tranquility that would have affected even the animal kingdom. So first, we said is grace, which is the biggest ticket item. Second is this thing of integral nature. And third and finally are these further privileges associated with original justice. We said this is immortality, and the big word for not being able to suffer pain or corruption is impassibility from patience or patsior, which just means to suffer. So we would have found it easy to pass through life. We would never have known the sorrow attendant upon tragedy, we would have never have known the anxiety born of bodily illness. We would have never have known the pain of loss. Okay? And St. Thomas kind of coordinates all this, and he says we can observe a fourfold subordination. All right? Subordination sounds like a bad word, right? Sometimes we encounter it in reading Ephesians 5, verses 21 and following about marriage. Be subordinate to each other out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subordinate to your husbands. I live with a particular Dominican who calls this Nudge Sunday, right? Because men who don't otherwise listen to the proclamation of the epistle start going. <laughs> so there's a fourfold subordination that obtains. So we said that all of material creation is subordinate to man, body to soul, lower powers to higher powers, but it all hinges on the highest. Namely, our minds would have been subordinated to God. Not in a way that treats us as so many slaves or servants, but in a way that was ennobling because we could actually see the objective order of things and it resonated in our lives. So, 
God intended that this gift be conferred not only on our original parents, but on all of those who came from them. He intended that this be a permanent fixture in our lives. It's not just something fragile, which is destined to shatter. It hangs in the balance, and that original choice against him need not have been so. So this is God's intent for us. That's our first point, innocence. Second, let's continue down the path. Sin. Here we want to talk about the fall. Again, I'll quote G.K. Chesterton. I should say a word of introduction. I don't presume that people have heard of him. I'm a nerd who likes him a lot. But he was born in 1874, and uh, he died in 1936. He lived in Beaconsfield, just outside of London. And he was principally an essayist and journalist, but he wrote quite a number of popular apologetics, so popular defenses of the faith, the most famous of which is called Orthodoxy. Another very famous one is called uh, The Everlasting Man. If, you're, if you've heard the name and you're slightly interested in reading him, I'd recommend starting with the Father Brown stories. The idea is that there is a priest who is also a detective, and the way that he solves crime is basically being sensitive to what is in the heart of man. And it's beautiful. He's asked in one of the stories, how is it that you solve all of these murders? And he says, uh, somewhat ironically, because I've committed them all. Which is a profound notion about our complicity in sin. A profound notion about what it means, I suppose, you know, for him to, to be a priest is to know all of sin and yet in God's grace and please God, you know, to remain aloof from it. So, Chesterton writes this, All of virtue is in an if. The note of the fairy utterance always is, You may live in a palace of gold and sapphire if you do not say the word cow. Or you may live happily with the king's daughter if you do not show her an onion. The vision always hangs upon a veto. All the dizzy and colossal things conceded depend upon one small thing withheld. All the wild and whirling things that are let loose depend upon one thing that is forbidden. The point here isn't just to be strange or to be paradoxical, but he's highlighting the fact that original sin to us probably seems a bit arbitrary, right? You can live in eternal bliss provided that you don't touch fruit on this random tree that I planted in the middle of the garden. It seems almost as if God were tempting our first parents. It seems as if he was setting them up to fail. But Chesterton is highlighting the fact that the enjoyment of bliss always hangs upon a choice. It always hangs upon an act of obedience, not one of servile fear, but one of affection, one of devotion, one of friendship. Because we are not the standard of our flourishing. We cannot give adequate account for our lives. There will always be a higher standard because we are created and God is not. And so to enjoy that bliss means always to receive it from him. So that's why the first act of sin or the kind of primeval act of disobedience is usually classed as a sin of pride. So it's sometimes thought, St. Thomas says, that either Adam and Eve or our first parents wanted God on their own terms. That is to say they didn't want their beatitude to be a gift of grace or they just wanted to find it in themselves. Effectively, they could not abide the fact that their perfection was a gift to be received. They wanted it to be a project of their own devising. But in making it such, they lost it entirely. Because all of it hangs on this, if you can live with the king's daughter, provided you do not say the word onion, right? It seems, again, arbitrary and silly, but we can appreciate the inner dynamics of it. That we are made in relation And the reception of divine life always entails the preservation, the continuance of, the growth in that relation. 
So what it is, is we rejected the terms of sanctification. That is to say, we rejected that it be a gift. So however you want to put that, just the fact that it was gratuitous, the fact that it was from another, the fact that we stand as passive recipients to God's initiation, whatever it was, that is what we found repugnant and so rejected. Okay? So then just a word about original sin. What is it? How do we describe it? Okay? Original sin is basically a habit of your whole person. So you've heard about habits. So a habit is something that we're conditioned to do, usually by practice, usually by a real deep, rational engagement with some subject matter. And in the Christian tradition, it's common, it's common to talk about the virtues as habits. So the virtues are these particular habits that inform different parts of our lives. So our minds can be elevated by faith, such that we believe God because God speaks, because we know that he reveals and that he speaks truly. And it all hinges on that. It opens it up to a world that goes beyond our grasp otherwise. So too, charity can inform our will, that seat of choice, that most distinctive element in the human person, which you know, chooses for or against. Charity can actually embolden our love such that we can love for God's sake. We can love our neighbor for God, unto God. We can love ourselves for God, unto God. We can love God with his own love, which is staggering. Wow. Okay. So original justice, though, is a habit that informs the whole person. Okay? It's not so much here or here. It's more here. Okay? Whole person. It informs the whole person. So the analogy that St. Thomas draws is he says, grace is like health. It, it signifies the good functioning of the whole spiritual person. He says, original sin is like sickness. Original sin is like sickness. Because it denotes where health ought to have been and is no longer. So effectively, what it amounts to is the loss of those original gifts, the loss of original justice. So this means a loss of grace, that first dimension, so our minds are no longer subordinated to God. It means the loss of integral nature. So whereas form, you know, formerly in past times, there was this order that obtained in our interior life. Now there's just this hot mess of desire. And then a loss of those original privileges. So we're no longer immortal. We're banished from the garden. There's a cherubim with a flaming sword keeping us from entering again. And impassibility, right? We, we now suffer loss, corruption, sadness, weakness, sorrow, all the nine yards. <clears throat> now, mind you, this sounds like a grim landscape. And it kind of is, right? <laughs> I mean, it's March in Ireland. What else do you want, okay? I'm going to take a sip of my tea. Lest it cool. Okay, so it sounds grim, but it's not total depravity. It is not total depravity, which is to say that it's not a positive inclination to evil. It's not God made us good to desire good things, and then we become evil, desiring evil things. So a better way to think about it is this. Whereas formerly we had this original harmony, and we found it easy to choose a right and to choose well, now we find it exceedingly difficult. So all progress has to be purchased at a steep cost. So whereas formerly we would have found it easy to worship, holy hours would have been you know, undistracted, unobstructed, unimpeded, and delightfully done. Now it's like you sit down and you think of a million things. You start making a, you know, a series of notes to yourself in your iPhone, um, and then you think of responsibilities, and then it causes in you an instant wave of anxiety. And then you forget to silence your phone and somebody texts you and for some reason you check it and you're like, yikes, shouldn't have done that because now I'm deeply involved back in this situation that I had bracketed formally. So it's like, we find it very difficult now, but formerly it was not so. It's because all of these things that we desire 
are now in conflict. They're no longer orderly. Okay? So, <coughs> when the harmony of original justice is lost, the various powers of the soul have their various tendencies, and they kind of go about it in their own ways. Um, so yeah, there's a kind of disorder that follows from original sin, but it's not directly. It's not like, whereas formerly we were like, let's do good things. Now we're like, let's do decidedly bad things. We don't actually desire evil. It's just something that comes as a result of what formerly kept us sane now being lost to us. So now, whereas formerly we had a fourfold harmony, now we have a fourfold wound. So first, the wound of ignorance. Whereas formerly we knew and saw clearly, reality was transparent to our gaze, now we lack it. In our will we have malice. Whereas formerly we found it sweet to love, sweet to affirm, sweet to encourage, now all of our relationships are tinged with competition. We see another's good as a threat to our own. We see their esteem as somehow bringing us into disfavor. So too in our passions, they're tinged by weakness. Whereas formerly we found it good and delightful and enjoyable to pursue heroic deeds, to be like Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati, headed for the heights. Now we find it extremely laborious and, and just exceedingly difficult. And then fourth and finally, concupiscence, which is to say we could look at good and delicious things, and we could see them clearly and think, yeah, I would like to have a chocolate chip cookie and a half, but I'd also like to pray. Now, we are just on flame with desire for things that are, you know, tasty and shiny and sexy and whatever, and they just direct our gaze and absorb us and make us forgetful, forgetful of spiritual things. So I know that Father Thomas Joseph came and spoke here last month, so I thought I'd quote him on this topic. The first is ignorance, which affects our intellect. We are unable to grasp who God is personally and live in a kind of spiritual orphanhood regarding the knowledge of our Creator. The second is malice or ego, ego, egoism in the human will. This is a self-referentiality of the human heart that tends to desire its own good above that of others and even in preference to the goodness of God. This wound of sin causes in us a fundamental distrust of God and an effective antipathy to religious truths. Third is weakness that affects our emotional life of fortitude so that it is more difficult to us, for us to struggle to obtain difficult goods. We are typically slothful or indifferent in the face of serious moral demands. Finally, there is concupiscence, an exaggerated desire for sensate pleasures of food, drink, and sex, wherein human beings seek rest or even personal transcendence primarily in the pleasures of the senses rather than in the goods of a spiritual life. All right? And you can think about that last one. People are more excited about tasting wines and getting really into coffee, whether it be fair trade or not, or like having a very refined sense of the best fast food in, um, in, in Ireland. I was encouraged today to go to some place called Mac something. What was I? Super Mac. Super Mac, yes. And then the person caught themselves and they're like, go tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> it being Ash Wednesday. Uh, so we're, we're absorbed in all of these sensate goods, and we've forgotten the higher joys. We've forgotten the higher pleasures. People are just more motivated about being foodies than they are about being mystics. Okay. Now, just as original justice was intended to be con you know, conveyed to the offspring of our first parents, it was intended to be communicated upon all generations, so now original sin is transmitted to us from our first parents. So all of us have a kind of solidarity in the sin of Adam. For a lot of people, this registers as unfair. Why do I suffer the effects of a sin that I myself didn't commit? Well, remember, we are not born bad. God doesn't make us bad. 
We aren't due by right the order that obtained. That was a spiritual gift. And we're still open to the prospect of grace. We can still be elevated, right? But God could have made us without those original gifts, and it would have represented uh, no injustice on his part. So to deprive us of them now, nor is it an injustice in this case. So we, St. Thomas describes us as somehow complicit in the sin of Adam, not as personally being present and being like, yeah, go for it, eat it. Rather, we are present in Adam's person. He says we are all like one body. Just as we speak about the church as a mystical body, so we are all incorporated in one body of humanity. And he says Adam is like the will. And so everything is involved in that. When the will chooses, the hand moves, the feet fly, the mouth enjoys, you know, the mind takes delight. So we are all bound up in that original sin. We are all, uh, you know, we have a kind of solidarity with Adam in that regard. So... um, But that's good news for a reason that we'll describe next. So third and final movement, redemption. Grace, we said, was originally intended to be communicated through marriage. It was originally intended to be communicated to Adam and Eve's offspring through sexual intercourse, right? So in the beginning, there isn't a sacramental order. Christ institutes the sacraments. In the beginning, there isn't religious life. It would have made no sense. To what end? Because everyone can enjoy the contemplation of God for which religious take themselves apart. Because there wouldn't have been the kind of secondary concerns that there are now in light of sin. Right? So marriage was supposed to be transparent to the working of grace. St. John Paul II often speaks about the nuptial meaning of the body. The body was intended to reveal a communion of persons into which we entered as man and woman as a reflection of God. Which is, I mean, that's like a pretty grand promise. It almost sounds like theological poetry. It's like, hold up, chief. You're getting ahead of yourself. But the thing is, he's not. He thought and prayed about it for like 25 years and then spoke about it for five years and then continued to comment upon it for like another 20. So it was not said in haste, nor was it said hyperbolically. So (laughs) we didn't have any strict need for the sacraments. We didn't even have a strict need for the incarnation. Whenever you encounter references to Christ taking flesh in the scriptures, it always says, firstly, in light of sin. Now, we can argue as to whether or not he would have taken human flesh, but there's no strict necessity for it. We can imagine a human life in a certain regard without it. But the fact is that we did sin. The fact is that we are all part of the humanity, of all part of the solidarity in Adam. And what's wild about God's actions subsequent to that choice, though they are present to him eternally, is that he doesn't just clean the slate. He doesn't just turn back the clock. He doesn't just make undone what was done. Rather, what's beautiful about it, and in a way, God, God's wisdom, I mean, he is, you know, like, the, you can't sound the depths of it. Uh, you can only appreciate it from a, from a kind of mystical pose. But that God makes it somehow redound to something greater. Out of this incredible tragedy, out of this fault, which has resonated through human history unto the present, God does something great and glorious. It's often referred to now, downstream of St. Augustine, as a happy fault, O Felix Culpa. A beautiful illustration comes uh, in, I don't know if you've ever read the book. Has anyone ever read the book, The Silmarillion? Okay, a couple. So perhaps you've come across The Hobbit by J.R.R. Tolkien and then The Lord of the Rings. Those are the ones that he spent a ton of time on and actually published during his lifetime. But after he died, 
His son, Christopher, collected a lot of his papers and cobbled together the Silmarillion, which tells the story of the first and second ages of Middle-earth and like the kind of beginning of the third age, which is where The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings take place. It sounds nerdy, <laughs> because it is. Um, <laughs> but at the beginning of the Silmarillion, he recounts a creation story. It's called the Valaquinta. And in that, creation is the fruit of song, the song of these elemental spirits. Um, they're kind of like ministering angels. But into that song, by evil spirits, fallen spirits, malign spirits, there are introduced these discordant notes. So whereas originally there was a kind of harmony, now there is this real grating discord. And God could have done any number of things. He could have banished those evil spirits. He could have returned them to nothing. He could have sentenced them to a kind of imprisonment that would have kept them very, very far away from that beautiful and uninterrupted song. But what he does is better. He reorchestrates the good elemental spirits. He reorchestrates their voices to incorporate this, those discordant notes in a richer harmony. So in a certain sense, he improves upon his original work by bringing into the fabric of it, by bringing into the warp and woof this kind of thing that was originally outside or seemed to be outside, but now we discover falls within the fold, falls within the plan of his providence. So St. Augustine will say with insistence that God permits no evil to befall except he can bring about from it some greater good. I will repeat that. God permits no evil to befall except he can bring about from it some greater good. And I'll put it to you that this is not something that we can ordinarily appreciate at the time. Right? I've, I mean, like, whatever, to speak somewhat autobiographically. Um, these are the kind of things that I have discovered downstream. So I'll be perhaps at the house of a family member whom I haven't visited with in a long time. Since I've entered religious life, I, don't, I just don't, you know. But, but occasionally, every once in a while, you'll be in a place that you haven't been for 10 years, and you'll smell something. You'll smell something that you haven't smelled since then. And it's almost as if you are transported bodily, not only back to that former time and place, but, but back to a former self. Because you can remember things with a kind of clarity that you haven't felt since. And often in those moments, I have the recognition that yes, life is still sad and lonely and anxious, but it somehow feels more possible. It somehow feels richer. It somehow feels more beautiful. And that gives me a kind of encouragement that formerly I may have lacked or formerly I may have lost sight of. But being returned to that time, I can appreciate how God has been present, how God has been operative, how he has been saving me from all the many defects of my personality, from, from time and fate and moral ugliness which pervades a lot of what I do. And he is bringing me to a new place, which is yet more glorious, but precisely in and through the trial, the difficulty, the sorrow, the suffering, the pain, whatever it might be. And that's awesome. But that's only something that can subsequently be revealed. Because in the midst of it, all that pain does is just cause psychic trauma. And oftentimes it prevents us from thinking clearly. It prevents us from thinking straight. It prevents us from thinking well. And so we're not in a place really to interpret our experience until such time as Christ gives it to us, which he does. So... The grace of Christ excels in splendor that of our original state. And the thing about the solidarity in sin is that it now gives way to a solidarity in redemption. We read in Romans 5, For if by the transgression of the one the many died, how much more did the grace of God and the gracious gift of the one man Jesus Christ overflow for the many? Fixate on those words. How much more? How much more? So we can say in faith, I do not know how, 
I cannot search the depths of your wisdom, Lord, but I know that you are somehow bringing us into the how much more of your redemption. What then is that, um, what then is that something greater? Okay? What then is that? We want to concretely explain this, and we're, I have about five minutes left. Okay? So this is not a kind of Edenic nostalgia. We're not looking forward to a return to the garden. We're not looking forward to a return to our original state. But rather, what we want is conformity to Christ. We want friendship with Christ. We want to be lost in Christ. We want to love Christ with a reckless abandon that sets our hearts on fire and gives us wild eyes of witnesses such that when we walk around UCD's campus, people look at us and say, you're a madman or a madwoman, and I want something of what you are drinking. Permit me to drink of that fount to imbibe of those saving waters. Now, mind you, I had people asking me that question kind of tacitly, but it was because I was running around your campus in a 13th century garment. Um, <laughs> so, like, you do look wild, but for different reasons. <laughs> so, what we want now is something richer, that conformity to Christ. What was originally transmitted, or what would have been originally transmitted by nature, namely grace, is now transmitted one by one, slowly, slowly, as the fruit of struggle. And it's historical, it's personal, it's contingent, and it's only and ever done in the context of friendship with Christ, which is awesome, and I would not take it on any other terms. So let's then revisit original justice as a way of summarizing. We said that original justice gave us grace, it gave us original uh, or integral nature, which is to say an order, and then it gave us these associated privileges. The thing is we get them all back, but we get them in spades. So grace, grace we know is infused at baptism. It cleanses us of fault. It actually orients us to God by giving us a a sacramental character which makes us worshipers. We are made sons and daughters of the Most High God. Adopted, yes, but really and truly so. Paul's language in this regard is unambiguous. I am the vine, you are the branches. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We live the very same life. Ours is created, his is uncreated, but it is the same. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So we get grace now, but in the context of a kind of family life. Not one that's like kind of boring, wild, and wooly, you know, like let's all hold hands and talk about our feelings. Not that that's bad. Um, But it's the kind of grace that like is thick. It's the kind of grace which accompanies you in every imaginable situation. So like at the beginning of his most beautiful homily given in John 14 through 17, What does Christ begin with? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. Were it not so, would I go to prepare a place for you? But I do. I go to prepare a place for you. So Christ is introducing us into Trinitarian communion through the grace of adoption communicated in friendship. That's one. Two, integral nature. Integral nature, which would ordinarily have been communicated to our offspring, is now only slowly reconstituted in virtue, right? So we can grow in virtue. You think about this. You know, we kind of like give it lip service. But we can actually become better. We can actually become better. So in those moments, those passing moments, where you feel completely imprisoned by your vices, when you feel completely imprisoned by the limitation of your knowledge and love, when you feel completely imprisoned by lack of job prospects or, or fear of the future, it is possible to grow. It is possible to grow and that God gives it and has promised to give it and that the real protagonist of history is the beggar. 
It's Christ who begs for the heart of man and man who begs for the heart of Christ. And Christ has promised to be faithful and to enrich us with every good and perfect gift come down from the Father of lights. So we can grow in intensity, we can grow in extent, and we can become more and more progressively stable and permanent in those dispositions so that like, it's not always going to be a struggle. The saints do it kind of like moral virtuosos. They don't struggle for every discrete choice. It becomes easy, it becomes prompt, it becomes joyful. It becomes far better than we can ask for or imagine. And third and finally, associated privileges, these are deferred unto the resurrection. So think again, that we await a complete transfiguration of the material order. We are not meant to languish under the burden of the many difficulties associated with this life. We are meant to look with unveiled faces on God in a a, a joy that will actually overflow into our bodily lives, which will be returned to us in his final triumph at the general resurrection. So we get all of those glorified elements, right? What St. Thomas refers to as subtlety and agility and impassibility. You know, it's just like we get all of that. But now we will see how we have come to this point. Think about Christ's glorified body. How is he recognized? No longer by his face. He is recognized principally by his wounds. So we will bear in our glorified bodies the marks of our personal history, the marks of our very intensely personal relationship with Christ, and we will sing the praise of God in light of what we have endured because it was with him, and as a result of which it was fruitful. So there is now a narrative dimension to the dispensation of grace. It is done in the context of friendship. We are incorporated Personally, we are said, as St. Paul has it, to fill up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Not because there is anything deficient to them, but because it remains for him to tell his story of salvation in you. And in a certain sense, that story is not complete until you tell it with your own voice, until you supply the notes in the heavenly choir that only you can. So, why Lent? Because Lent is a reenactment. It is a rehearsal of just this recovery. We adopt a penitential spirit to put on Christ and to pass with him through his passion, death, and resurrection. We believe, St. Thomas teaches, that all of the sufferings, all of the deeds of Christ are saving, but that the passion is especially so because it gives most eloquent expression to the love and obedience out of which he suffered and died for us. So in these 40 days, though they be dark, though they be wet, Though they be stressful, we proceed together with him to Calvary, that by sharing in a death like his, we might partake of his sonship, of his virtue, and of his resurrection. So, as St. Francis said, let us begin, for up until now, we have done nothing. Thank you.